Well, we heard it. Well, okay. So this shear is is an amalgam of uh, one core point, which Rabbi Yisrael Gordon said at Michal's house the other night. So I was very excited by many of the things he said. It was really an amazing shear. But there was one particular point which was really a fantastic pull together of some other ideas I had been working on. And so that, that's what we're going to talk about today, preparing for Purim. Um, so apologies to you. But I'm, uh, well, it, it won't be his year. That was a great year. I won't, I won't be his year, but it'll be fun to see how it worked into another idea. Okay. And it's based on some ideas, some things I've been reading in the Pachad Yitzchak, and also a shear from Rabbi Leff, and a different shear from Rabbi Asman, another shear from Rabbi Gordon, and all of it, some things from the Orachayim and all, kind of coming together. So, um, one question that I had, and it, as it often happens with these questions, you sort of like wonder how you didn't ask the question for a long time. So, one question that I suddenly had was this. When it comes to this time of year, we talk about Amalek, and we talk about characteristics of mm-hmm. Amalek, usually um, regarding to the fact that the gematria of Amalek is like the gematria of Suffolk, doubt. Asher mm-hmm. kor they cooled you down on your way so that you didn't have that passion and excitement <clears throat> about your relationship with Hashem. We talk about Amalek as associated with late sanus, with cynicism mm-hmm. or mockery. Um, so that's, that's a topic this time of year. You know, you have Parsha Zahor and you have Haman, who's Agagi, so he's descended from Agag, the king of Amalek. And it suddenly occurred to me that I did not actually see, I mean, I had never thought about it, but... We talk about that as the quality of Amalek, and it's all about the battle between Amalek and the Jews. But where is that Amaleki battle fought on the Purim battleground? And the story of Esther. I didn't actually... So I tried, like, I thought, well, I guess, you know, there's some things about, like, the Purim, and we, you know, the, the sort of randomness of that. And that was actually our topic last year, the idea that Amalek tries to undermine the sense that there is... They accept all the way up to the level of something supernatural, maybe magic or, or the constellations or things, but not actually quite up to God. And so that was what we talked about last year. So that, I suppose, was, in fact, without realizing it, a way of thinking about how does the battle of Amalek and the, and the Jews in the world, it's not really the battle of Amalek and the Jews, it's a battle between Amalek and God. That's the mm. truth. So that, that by itself is a helpful thing to realize. Right? Hashem says, I will do battle with Amalek. And, mm. and Amalek is described as having its hand against God's throne. So it's not actually a battle between Amalek and Jews. Mm-hmm. It's a battle between Amalek and God. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm thinking of that, I'm realizing that really answers a lot. If we think about all the things we've learned about, may God be blessed through me and our role as, as agents of God in the world, all people, but Jews as being especially aware of that and with an active role assigned at this stage in the world to do that, then it explains a lot about the battle with Amalek. It's not that we have a battle with Amalek. God has a battle with Amalek. That's between him and them. 
and we are his agents, and he sends us out to fight his battles, as he does, generally not usually battles, as he does send us out to be his agents for delivering bracha and education and Torah to the world. We are also, as it turns out, his agents in this battle against Amalek, which I think is a different way of thinking about it a little bit than I thought about it before, and it helps explain a lot. And it also ties into the way that I started to understand it for this year, um, which, which was I didn't see it so much in the plot line, and I feel like the pieces that I learned help explain the battle in terms of that. Um, another question, which gets an- they get answered by the same principles. Another question is, why did, why did this happen? So step one of why did this happen is the question of why did the Jews deserve having this gazera happen to them? That's one of the things that um, Rabbi Gordon talked about. It's a Gemara. I think I looked it up. I think it's Megillah Yud um, where the students of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai are discussing why was it decreed in heaven that all the Jews should be wiped out. Mm-hmm. Okay, Not only was it decreed on earth, that was just a symptom of the fact that it had been decreed in heaven. What had they done to deserve to, be, to have this Gezerah? Another question is... Um, the, the, the Talmud asks in Chulin, Haman min ha-Torah minayin. Where do we learn about Haman in the Torah? Where do we learn about Mordechai in the Torah? Where do we learn about Esther in the Torah? And Esther, of course, we know is haster aster ponai. God says, I will surely hide my face on that, on that day, that's that, that evil day. Um, and where do we see, how is that a hint to Esther herself, as opposed to a hint to just the book of Esther, you know, that we know a little more about because his name isn't in the book of Esther, God's name isn't in the book of Esther, and all the events take place in a fairly, uh, using natural means and natural uh, powers that are normally in the world. There's no splitting of the Red Sea, there's no upheaval of natural forces, but nonetheless, it's not really a natural concatenation of events, all of these things happening one after the other and in the order they happen and in the timing that they happen. And nobody at the time felt like it was natural, but it was natural events. So that... That's the part we usually talk about, but how do we see it with Esther herself? If this is asking where Esther is noticed in the Torah. And the last question that I think I want to bring, it's not the last question, the last question that we'll, we'll bring over here, um, and which I found to be possibly the most enlightening question of all, because right, we learned from Ruf Hutner, the questions teach you more than the answers. <laughs> What is the purpose of redemption? What is the purpose of Geula? Again, it's a question that, that tells me even more than the answers. The answers probably are already within our, our storehouse of knowledge to some extent. To some extent, some parts of it not. Um, but when I suddenly asked that question, I realized that I had had a working assumption unconsciously. So one reason I had never asked the question was because I just assumed an answer. So we've talked a lot about what is the purpose of gullus? What is the purpose of suffering? What is the purpose of going through a dark path to get to a light path? But we never asked, at least I don't remember asking the question, what is the purpose of the geula, of the redemption? And I think that's because inside of myself, my assumption was, so I should be safe, comfortable. (laughs) So it should be good for me, right? If I'm suffering, 
So I've thought about what purpose the suffering itself might have. But when it came to being redeemed from suffering, I did not think about what purpose the redemption from suffering might provide. I only thought about it in terms of relief from the suffering, not as a destination or an event on its own as having a purpose. So those are the questions that I think, uh, those are some of the questions that become addressed through these different things that I've been learning. So question number one is the question of Amalek and Leitzanus and getting a little bit of an understanding about what that means. And for this, it's actually, it's this Pachad Yitzchak, but I did a print out of it. It's Pachad Yitzchak, and it's the first Indian on Purim. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to paraphrase some selections from it. He says, in the laws of Leitzanus, believe it or not, there are rules about cynicism. There's rules, there's halachos for everything, including uh, a little bit, I think, cynicism is, is not sarcasm, but it is, sits very close nearby. And it's worth knowing because sarcasm can be really funny and a really good diffuser. But you have to be very careful with it, as with all kinds of humor, that they are serving the correct purpose. So there are rules about mockery, fun, levity. Rules about leitzanos. All leitzanos is aser. Kol leitzanusa asira. Except leitzanusa de avodazara. Except for mockery of avodazara. Now... Rav Hutner says it's obvious that that means that you could, there's a place for mocking anything that's on the side of evil. Mm-hmm. And it's not really just saying only Avodah I don't know why that's obvious, but especially when you say everything is forbidden except this one exception, I don't know why that's obvious to him. But he's, he's not analyzing that statement per se. What he's analyzing is the concept, meaning if it's okay, if it's mutter, to make a mockery of anything that is bad or evil. I, I don't think any of us feel uncomfortable about mocking Hitler, although I don't know that he was per se an Oveda Vodazara, that he represents a Vodazara, right? But we would understand, not only would that be okay, but that might be a very powerful tool. If you've ever listened to those you know, radio shows or podcasts or television shows where they make fun of, let's say, a political candidate, it's devastating. You can change... Right, because people, as the Talmud says, one, one piece of leitzanos pushes away a hundred pieces of tochacha, of, of correction or corrected thinking. I mean, that's all it takes is one tiny laugh that's got maybe a seed of truth to it, maybe not. And it's very, very hard to overcome. So we can understand how that might even be appropriate or necessary or a valuable tool. So if so, why did the Chachamim specifically associate this heter with Avodah Zarah? Why would Avodah Zarah be sort of the, the index case or the classic case for the situation where Leitzanus would be okay? So he says the key to this, and, and as always with Pachad Yitzchok, it's, it's in steps. So you have one concept and then you build another one on that and another on that. He says where the starting point of this is looking at the words of the Rabbeinu Yonah on the verse... Mitzarif Lachos, I think it's Lachosef. I put in, I might have put in vowels on my Xerox copy. Did I think about it? No, I didn't. Mitzarif Lachosef, Vechur Lazaha Ve'ish Lafi Mahalalo. You can purify, you can see the true essence of silver and of gold by smelting them down, by melting them, separating them from any impurities. 
How do you know what a person's really like? Ish mahalalo, according to his praise. Now, the normal way that that pasuk tends to get read is that a person can be recognized, can be known for who he really is um, by the way that people praise him. Listen, talk to people, right? You're involved with shaduchim, call people up, listen to what they say. How do they praise this person? And if you hear that people keep mentioning the same things, then you know something about them that you didn't know before. Rabbeinu Yonah says that's not what that verse means. <laughs> Why you get all comfortable with that? <laughs> I'm not sure you couldn't also learn it that way. He says, Ishlafima Halalo means you know a person by what he praises. Okay, I'm pretty sure we've brought this up before. You know a person by listening to him. Listen to the person and listen to the things he talks about and what are the things he praises. Here's how Rabbeinu Yonah says it. If the things that he praises, that he talks positively about, that he's excited about, are good deeds, wise people, righteous people. Teda, then you know. Uvachanta, and you have proven or tested. Ki'ish tovhu, that this is a good person. And there is a root of justice and goodness in this person. That's not to exclude the possibility that he also does sins. And, and these, maybe, maybe on the outside he looks nice, but there's still issues inside, right? But he is a lover of justice. He is a lover of what is right. That's also kind of encouraging, right? Isn't that a little encouraging? Because it's, I have heard many times from people that they feel that they are unworthy, that they are judging themselves as bad people because they know that they sin or there are things that they, they know they should do better and they haven't done better. And one thing that this Rabbi Yona tells us is if what you care about and what you want and what you admire and what you strive to be near and what you talk about are things that are good, then fundamentally you're on the right track. You're facing in the right direction. You may not be there yet, but you're facing in the right direction. And that's, that, that is a fundamental root basis of being good. You're on the good team. One who praises despicable actions, or praises the wicked, who Russia Hagamor, he might be the complete Russia. He doesn't say might. I, I don't know how. I mean, it's not maybe the most common way to hear Rabbi Nuyona speak. This is like pretty strong stuff. And, and again, looking at our society, look at our society. What do people talk about? Right? What if, you know, I have, I have been fortunately isolated from talk radio for many, many, many years, decades at this point. But, but listen to what people, t- maybe don't listen, I don't know. What do people talk about? Who are they praising? For whatever reasons, you know, for their political, re- whatever it is, who are people praising? Which movie stars or actors who are, and what are they talking about? What are they excited about? the latest scandal they've been involved in, the latest boundaries that they've pushed, or taboos that they've broken, this is not a good sign. If that's what people think about, talk about, and praise. So if we think into this golden language of Rabbeinu Yona, and we want to put it to the test, and we want to say, this person, what, what, what's his characteristic? How can we categorize somebody? Like, as if we need to do that all the time. But 
The real root question is, Tunuas hahisbatlus shelo. His movement toward, his batlus would be like negating himself. It doesn't mean undoing himself. It means making himself transparent to the other. Sort of not bowing down as in worshiping, but who does he humble himself before? In what direction does he lean? Because tenuas hahisbatlus, the direction that a person leans, the direction where a person says, I'm at your service, it would be an honor to be associated with you. So it's not my identity that I admire here in the, you know, if I'm having two identities present, it's your identity that I want to dominate here. That really springs from the power of recognizing chashivos, acknowledging the importance of somebody or something, the significance of them. So, and he says why? Because when a person acknowledges or realizes that something that something or someone has chashivos is important, there is born within him a feeling of, of, of moving his identity down in favor of that other identity. He wants to be associated with that. That should be the name. That should be the fame, right? People would say, I once sat next to a guy who turned out to be a guitarist. So on, a, on an airplane. So we were talking a little bit. Now, I had never heard his name. And probably most people haven't, even people who are into rock and roll. Like, you have to be very, very into it to know the names of the band players. And there are people who do, but like, unless you yourself are in a band and you're hiring, then you kind of know what's going on in the scene. But most people, they know the lead singer or something. They don't know the whole band. But his claim to fame was he had played with Matityao. So Matis Yao, whatever he goes by now, right? So he plays with Matis Yao. So that was like his thing, you know? So that I've heard of, mm-hmm. right? So there's a hisbatlus there in the face of the chashivos, right? Mm-hmm. If he recognizes that Matis Yahu is a really famous name, then he's, associ- he's saying like, I'm, you know, George so-and-so, I play with Matis Yao, right? Like, because that is... That's an increase in his chashivos, not a decrease. Even though he's decreasing his own identity into someone else's identity, that's an elevation from his point of view. So it's all about the point of view. Where do you see that associating yourself, connecting yourself, bringing your identity down in subservience to the identity of someone else, that is a function of whether you think that that person is chashuv. So... If you have, he says, let us, let us um, hypothesize that we have two men in front of us, two people in front of us, one who studies Torah diligently all day, and the second one who we cannot at all put into the category of one who is busy with Torah. However, we find that the first one who studies Torah all the time, his, his movement of his batlus is recognizable when a very wealthy person comes into the room. Mm-hmm. But not when a big Talmud Chacham comes mm-hmm. into the room. You see the change on his face. You see the way he turns, the way he directs his body, the way he leans, the way he leans forward to talk. Mm-hmm. Okay? And what we see is that in front of the rich person, but not in front of the Talmud Chacham, there, there dominates in him the relationship of Chashivos. Like Rabbeinu Yonah says that even though this person is diligently learning Torah, his condition 
with respect to learning Torah is much higher than the person who has not been sitting and learning Torah. I mean, this guy's been sitting in a kolo for 20 years. He knows a lot more Torah. Maybe he's advanced in many ways in his mitzvos. But nonetheless, the first one is farther from Torah than the other guy. Mm-hmm. Because ish lefi mahalilo. You know a person by what he praises. If the power of recognizing chashivos that a person has will direct him towards Torah, because that's one of the symptoms, the symptoms of mahalilo, the symptoms of recognizing chashivas. You turn to face the person. You stand up when they walk into the room. You lean forward to speak to them, right? If there's a movement that needs to happen so that the two of you can communicate more closely, you're the one who makes an, uh, an effort to move forward toward it. If this person has that directed toward people who don't represent Torah, And the person who doesn't learn Torah all day directs himself in the direction toward chashivos in Torah, then what that means is that the second person has more more of a pull. He's being drawn closer to Torah than the one who's sitting and learning all the time. Now, he's not saying that that's characteristic of one who's sitting and learning all the time. Okay, this is not like some kind of criticism of people who sit and learn Torah. What he's saying is that you could have what appears to be an extreme that you would interpret one way, and the truth may be the opposite. Because the inner truth is more indicative of where a person is headed than the outer place where they happen to be. Which way are you facing on your personal ladder versus where are you on the ladder? Right? Now, the point here is not that we actually go around comparing people. He's using this. It, that's, he describes it almost as a thought experiment. Let us imagine to ourselves, right? Because in, in truth, you can't line two people up and compare them that way, and we're not called upon to do that. What we are called upon to do is assess ourselves and occasionally other people, not in comparison to anyone else, to get a concept, right? Okay. He says, so we we do in fact find this, that we'll have two people, one person who's been learning since he was young, studying Torah, the second one who is busy all the time in business, and when they get a little bit older, all of a sudden, like in the Megillah, right? It all turns upside down, and the first one starts regretting that he spent so much time. Um, He actually switched, reversed this, but... The first one starts regretting that he didn't spend more time in business when he was younger. I would have been farther ahead in a career by now. Or maybe he's just having a sort of a midlife crisis, so he's got to figure out who he is and where he is is where he's going, and so he's doubting where he is. The second one might regret that he didn't spend more time learning Torah when he was young. And now all of a sudden, in in their emotional state, the second one is closer to Torah than the first one. Mm -hmm. Even though if you'd be introduced to them at a party... You would just make an assumption that the first one's closer to Torah than the second mm-hmm. one. Even though the first one is a Bucky and Shas, and the second one can't learn a Mishnah. Ish lefi mahalilo. When you boil it down, it goes by what someone praises, where they turn, what do they recognize as being chashuv and important. This is what Rabbeinu Yonah calls, let's say, koach hahilul, the power of praise. The power of what somebody praises. What a person praises is an expression of what they value. Okay. Now, he says all of this is working on the assumption that a person has a functional quality of recognizing chashivos inside of them. 
We, we have made all these assumptions based on the idea that people do do that. Not, however, what if it isn't functioning? Ish lefi mahalalo, knowing a person by what he praises, takes as an assumption that we can presuppose that the person values anything. Right? Okay. It's like a, it's 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 a sharp thing to notice. We have built all this on an assumption. You have to know that the power of ascribing importance faces opposition within a person's mind. There is within the within the soul of within the nefesh of a person an inclination also toward cheapening things, devaluing things, devaluing people. You're not so important. Who does he think he is? Who are you to tell me what to do, right? Saying, oh, I think she's such a hot shot. Meaning there's, there's one way where I can look at other people and I, I admire them. Maybe I want to get closer to them. And there's one way that I can look at other people and I can feel threatened by the fact that I could ascribe importance to them. I could value them highly. That threatens my sense of who I am. And therefore, I seek to bring them down in my mind, even if not to other people, right? They're only human, right? Yes, this person is a Talmud Chacham, and yes, they have dedicated themselves to the Jewish community for 50 years, and yes, whenever anyone I know has needed help, they've turned to them and they've expressed sincere interest and care. But I think they're really mismanaging this problem, okay? So therefore, ah, who are they anyway? They're just a regular person. If it were me, I'd know what to do, and they don't even know how to handle such a thing. You hear this all the time. So then you have to speak up. Uh, you may have to speak up, yeah. But this is really, okay, so there's a lot of issues that could be going on there. But essentially, right, there's the story of Rav Yisrael Salantri. You saw two kids walking. One was up on the curb and one was on the street. And the one who was on the street kind of pulled the guy on the curb down. And Rav Yisrael Salantri said, you can't become great like that. You become greater by putting yourself up on the curb to be equal with the other person. You don't become greater by pulling the person on the curb down to your level. Right? That's even if it makes you feel that either way it's equal, okay? So that, that I think is this idea of the inclination to, to cheapen or devalue that which is important. And that is in opposition to the power of ascribing value and greatness and appreciation to others. And the name of that power, that power that often can burst out with surprising force, that seeks to blast to smithereens, Value, the ascription of value, is called Leitzanos. Leitzanos is the name of the quality that says that's not important. You're not important. They're not so important. That is the fundamental root of Leitzanos. That's what it looks about. And in every, every time Leitzanos sees a, cons- a construction of Hashivos, it seeks to destroy it and pull it down. And what it does is it looks for the whole. It goes around the building and looks to find where the weak bricks are. Where is something not quite perfect? And you know what? People aren't perfect. So you can always find something, even in the most hush of person. Okay? It walks around, it looks for the weak spot, and seeks to pull the whole building down from there. That's the desire. He said, right? God creates everything in balance. The power of building is as strong as the power of bringing down. 
So the potential for the koach ha-hilul of praising is as strong as the potential for the koach ha-chilul of emptying something of its value. It's a nice, right? Hilul, chilul. Ish lefi mehalilo. Is so that, that the same word? Me, yeah. Is that the same word as in the, in the uh, Yom Kippur um, dominate Matsnu? Yeah. Yeah. Makes it more applicable. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is the quality that we've been talking about all these years about Amalek. When, they, when we say that Amalek is associated with doubt, Amalek is associated with Leitzanus, Amalek is associated with, you know, cooling you off, Amalek is associated with tearing down, trying to tear down the throne of God, right? Denying God, no, knowing his creator and yet seeking to bring him down. What Rav, what Rav Hutner has explained here really shows how that all fit together. It's not a lot of different people saying different things about Amalek. This is a very specific quality. It's the quality of where can I find the weakness in order to bring down the whole building? But, but the purpose of the bringing down the building, this destructiveness, is not a destructiveness. You know, sometimes people become destructive because they don't have self-control about their anger, right? Or something like that. This is a destructiveness that comes purely of being threatened by something having value. I seek, I, I believe I have no value, and therefore I'm going to bring everything down to that to try and prove that nobody has value. Okay. So Avodazara, then, okay, we're not going to actually get the whole share, it looks like. <laughs> Avodazara, then, is the ultimate leitzanus. Why? Because if you want to say... What is the ultimate case of a person? Well, let's put it the opposite way. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. What is the case, says Rav Hutner, of Asher Bohim What is the case of a person ascribing value? Okay, going back to the Hilul versus Hilul, right? Or actually just the Hilul. A person ascribing value to something that completely doesn't deserve it. So we talked about movies and politicians and whatever, right? He says the ultimate case of turning and ascribing value to that which doesn't deserve it is Avodazara. Why? Because there is no greater expression of chashivus, of recognizing importance, than avoda. Service of is the ultimate expression that I think that you're a value. And there is no greater falsehood than that of an avodazara, of an allele, of saying you have, you have the power to do, right? It's giving, say I'm going to put myself in service of something that has power which has no power whatsoever. They have eyes, they cannot see, they have ears, they cannot hear. Their hands do not move. Therefore, when a person is worshiping an idol, the power of Hilul is succeeding. And, and it certainly is succeeding against the power of trying to pull everything down and cheapening. It, it's just in the wrong direction wildly. <laughs> okay, so that's why you have to have this underlying assumption that there is Hilul going on, and that's not necessarily an assumption you can always make. Because when there's Zilzul going on, you're not going to have Hilul either. The power of Hilul is working in opposition to the truth. Therefore, 
When it comes to Avodah Zarah, which is the peak of Hillel gone wrong, over here, the Chachamim say, here you could use lights on us. Here is the place where Hillel actually could have a value. Normally, we do not find a value for Hillel, for trying to suck out of something whatever value it, it might appear to have in the eyes of others. We don't do that. Why? Because just because something isn't perfect doesn't mean we can't appreciate the value it does have. Mm-hmm. Avodah Zarah is a pure falsehood. It is a hilul of falsehood, of something that has no truth. And therefore, that is the place, that, that's what hilul is for. That's what it was born for. In order to give us something to use that says, no, 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 over here, we don't, we don't use hilul. We use hilul. Okay. The, that is the kind of, of ra, Avodah Zarah is a ra that is, that is fed by incorrect hilul. And that, therefore, there is a place for hilul there. Okay. So now we can understand so much better what Rashi says in Zachor, Asher Karcha, that Amalek Karcha, not that he came across you, but that he cooled you off, right? Or that he said, it's all mikra, it's coincidence. What is that? It's, it's don't make such a big deal out of it. Don't think it all matters so much. Don't get so excited, right? You should keep your options open. Maybe it just looks like it's like this now, but it isn't. There's probably some natural explanation. It's coldness. He's cooled you off from your boiling. All the nations were afraid to fight with the Jewish people. They said, God is too powerful. This people is so protected. That's what it means, that mashal of Amalek jumping into the hot bath, knowing he'll be scalded, but now others will come. It's exactly that power of Leitzanus. It's saying, no, 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 you could fight against them. right? You might lose, but now it's a possibility. Now he has brought down the, the valuation of the Jewish people. People look at them, they don't ascribe so much, so much chashivos. They don't, instead of being untouchable, they're touchable. You might lose but it's not inconceivable to fight. Is their God too strong to consider fighting? No, he's not too strong to consider fighting, right? That's what Amalek achieved over there, and that's a pretty scary quality. So coming back to that Gemara, in, which I think is in Megillah, somebody else told me they saw it, maybe in Brachos, I don't know. What are the reasons that the Jewish people had the Gezeira against them? One was because they had bowed to the statues of Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't believe it was true. They didn't believe that that was an idol that was worshipable. They, they just felt forced. And the second sin was that they enjoyed the Se'uda of Ahasuerus. And what goes behind those two things, and this was something that Rabbi Gordon spoke out, he said the bowing to the idols of Nebuchadnezzar and attending the Feast of Ahasuerus both came from the same line of thinking. Mm-hmm. And the line of thinking was, here we are in exile. That's something that hasn't happened to us since Mitzrayim. And in Mitzrayim, it was a beginning of a process. It wasn't at, like, we, we weren't living in a society with a, with a country and a Beis HaMikdash and everything in order. So this is the first time we really have a gullus like this. And it, God's face is hidden. It doesn't mean there's no God, but they didn't understand, so what does this mean in terms of how we live in this gullus? It, it seemed, a lot of people thought that what it meant was 
you no longer are one-on-one -on -one talking to God. That's not true. That's a fallacy. Okay, since Purim, we now know as Jews that God's hand is always there directing us. His ear is always open to hear from us. And he communicates with us only through nature. Okay, so we are not on our own. We are not abandoned. We have a one-on-one, -on -one, we have hashgacha pratis. Hashem is still individually caring and involved and supervising every aspect of our lives. But immediately after Galus Bavel, people felt very unsure about that. There is no Beis HaMikdash. There is nowhere to go to just talk to God. There are no Kohanim standing there in the Orem Vitzhumim. In fact, the one who's got the clothes of the Kohen on is Ahasuerus. Right? I mean, the, the feeling was that if the king tells you you got to do something, then you probably better do it because right now it's not God who's hands-on controlling things. So we got to learn how to deal with dealing with the kings. And whatever the kings say, we're going to have to go with the flow in the name of self-preservation. So Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down to idols. Well, we know the Torah says not to bow down to idols, but they'll kill us if we don't bow down to idols. So I guess we have to bow down. We know it isn't true. Well, you know, so say they could cross their fingers behind their backs, but then you're bowing down to some other idol, you know, like, you know, not, it's not really so, but, but in the end they did something that it would be better to be dead than to live like that. You can't live like that. Can't live like that in this world, can't live like that in the next world, okay? And the same thing with the Suda of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus was calling in, why did he call in delegates from all the nations? He called in delegates from all the nations because what he's celebrating is the consolidation and the unity of his empire. We have 127 nations, everyone speaking their own language, everyone, right? Each one honored according to his culture, drinking according to his custom, each one here and each one unified under the domain of Ahasuerus, the king, and that includes the Jews. You are not part of the Jewish nation in the Jewish country. You are part of the grand Persian empire. And that's what we have come together to celebrate. And Mordechai said, you can't go. And other Chachamim said, you can't go to a party like that. It, it's, you know, it's the party version of bowing down to the idol. Not, not because it was a Vodazara. The people said, what are you talking about? This isn't a Vodazara. This isn't, there's no, there's no, it doesn't say in the Torah that you can't go to a party. I mean, the food is kosher, the wine is kosher. They're going to give us a separate room. We don't have to be in the room with the prostitutes and the strip dancers. So what's the problem? And he said, no, you're going to a place where the purpose of this event is to praise your gullus. You're celebrating the fact that you have lost your hashgacha pratis, God's power in your life. Now, they didn't lose hashgacha pratis, but that's how it felt. So Mordechai's take on that is, therefore, you can't go praise that. You start to understand also why it's so important you can't go celebrate it. Because it all depends what direction you're turning. What's important now? What are you celebrating, right? And the people said, nah, and they went anyway. Okay. As we learned elsewhere in the Pachat Yitzchak, later in the book, right, there's two ways to recognize God. We can recognize God through Anochi, Hashem Elokecha, Asher Hotzeisicha, Meretz Mitzrayim. I am God who took you out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and mighty miracles. And there's Anochi Haster Astir Panai. I shall surely hide my face. Okay, we can recognize God, the Anochi, the Aleph. We can recognize him in the hidden, 
We can recognize him in the open. We knew how to recognize him in the open at that stage of our development. We didn't know how to recognize him in the hidden. I mean, presumably Avraham had done that already, right? But somehow on a, on a national basis, we didn't know how to work with that. So where is Haman? Did you eat from the tree that I, that I told you not to eat from? Which is, of course, also a reference to the meal, right? Did you eat from where I told you not to eat? But it's also a way of saying, how did you get nourished? Where did your power come from? Did you eat from the tree? Where did you think you were going to get power from, right? You thought that that tree, God, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he's threatened. If you eat from it, you'll get special powers. Who gives powers? What are you turning to? Are you turning to God? Or are you turning to the things in the natural environment around you, thinking that they have the power and you have to live that way? Right? You have to live bowing to a king. You have to, uh, I mean, not the king, it's not necessarily a problem to battle a king. It might just be Derecharetz. But bowing to a statue of a king, that's a big problem. Okay? You might have to, you know, you think that you have to live by, by bowing to the celebration of the party. You have to go into that. Is there anything wrong with going to the party itself? Just if he had just made a party to celebrate, I don't know, you know, a son's birthday and there'll be kosher food. So I don't know if Mordechai would have told them don't go. It, the problem is what it represents, what it means, and the feeling that that's what you're going with. What you're going with is that all the power is in the natural place, the natural sphere now, and not behind it. And this brings us to this quite awesome Maharal in his Derechayim, which is it's cool because it's the next, we, we've seen something right next to this. Um, in the same chapter, Derechayim is the Maharal's parish on Perkeavos, and in the same chapter we had all that, all that wonderful material about Kinyan and the important, what, God has five Kinyanim in the world. Okay, this is the same, same source. Okay? Also quite a long essay, but we're not doing all 48. Okay, this is on the... <laughs> You think I'm joking? <laughs> the 48 ways in which Torah is acquired. We're not doing all 48. All right, so the 48 ways in which Torah is acquired, the 48th of which is the Haomer Dover B'Shem Omro, one who, say, who says something over in the name of the one who said it. Right? So-and-so said in the name of so-and-so. Umar does it all the time. Saying something over in the name of the one who said it. This is the 48th way of acquiring Torah, which kind of suggests it's also a peak in some way. You learn from this that whoever says something over in the name of the one who said it brings geula to the world. Geula? Redemption to the world. As it says, Vatomer Esther Lamelech B'Shem Mordechai. And the queen Esther said in the name of Mordechai. All right, so there's a few, there are a few questions here. First of all, I think it's awesome that the 48th way of, learning Torah, of acquiring Torah is one you learn from a woman. I think that's really very interesting. I'm not quite sure what the significance of that is, but it's still very interesting. Um, but there's a few questions going on here. One of them is, how do you learn from the fact that Esther told over to Ahasuerosh about the plot to assassinate him the big son and Seresh were hatching, and she said, instead of saying just here's the information and having it attributed to her, she said, I heard from Mordechai that, which somebody pointed out to me yesterday, is a risky thing to do, because why would she want to 
suggest the idea she's talking to some man who is not in the palace. That's not really and she the usual. Yeah, like any just the fact that she knows, like you'd think you wouldn't want to. Okay, she ascribes it to Mordechai. That's the source. Why does that bring Geula? In what way? How do we learn from that that it brings Geula? And as Rabbi Gordon said, what Geula did it bring? Um, it, what it brought about, the direct consequence of Esther telling over to the king that Mordechai had revealed that there was a plot against the king to poison him. Okay, what does that bring about? That when the king can't sleep, they open up the book and they read to him that Mordechai was never rewarded. And then when Haman shows up, he tells Haman to go put Mordechai on the horse with the crown and the robes and the royal horse and call out, this is how... Now, it's a great, it's a great story. It's everyone's favorite part of the Megillah, right? You smile, you laugh. It's such a funny image where Haman thinks that he's the one who's going to be honored and all of that honor gets turned over to Mordechai. It's funny. But how is it redemptive? As Rabbi Gordon put it, you could cut that whole part. You could cut that whole subplot out of the Megillah and you would st- with, without apparently destroying the story of the Megillah. I mean, the story of the Megillah is following a different side of the plot, which is that Esther invited Ahasuerus and Haman to come to a party, and they come to the party, and she says, come back the next night, and they come back the next night, and she says, someone's trying to kill me, it's Haman. That's the plot. The fact that in the night between those two parties, this other thing happened, Mm -hmm. like it's really, really interesting, and it's really, really funny, and it's a really, really powerful scene, but it's not apparent how that brought about the redemption. The Chachamim were saying that brought about the redemption. How did that bring about the redemption? This answers, by the way, another question that I didn't say at the beginning of the class, but which I heard Rabbi Eisenman ask. He says, what we would expect to find in this Megillah is that the Jews sinned in some way, which is not said explicitly, but is hinted to, and the Chachamim tell us what the sin was, that they went to the party, right? Meaning it describes that they went. It doesn't say that was a sin because you can't say that while you're writing this for public consumption under, you know, with Ahasuerus looking over your shoulder. You're not going to say, like, oh, they never should have come to your party, right? Okay, so it's hinted to. But, but there should be something about that they did tshuva. And that we don't see. You could go as far as saying that they fasted. So you understand from that that they were crying and doing tshuva. But where's the rectification of the sin? That we don't see, apparently. Okay, so it answers also that question, right? You know how it answers it because you already heard the punchline. But you see how it fits into all these other things. It's really helpful. Okay, so here's what the Maharal says in Dere Chaim in his commentary to Pirkei Avos. That the Mishnah says, here you learn that whoever says something in the name of the one who said it brings redemption to the world. We have to ask, how, how is it that Chazal are understanding that because she did this, there was a geula through Esther? Chazal are telling us that because Esther did this, there was a geula through her, but it, they don't connect the dots for us. 
Every quality of God is mida keneged mida, one one in perfect measure, measure for measure. But What is the connection between that if a person acts in this manner of ascribing things to their source, that therefore it is just and in parallel, you know, it it's equal. They'll they'll be equally repaid by being redeemed. It doesn't seem like one has anything to do with another. Yesh das, always magical words to see in a maharal. You should know. Ki kasher HaKadosh Baruch Hu mevi ge'ula. Okay, now we're going to start to understand what is the purpose of a ge'ula. When God brings ge'ula, redemption, you know what the purpose is? Hashem Yisbarach rotze sheyedu ki hu Yisbarach po'al. The purpose of a ge'ula is that people should know that he activated it. Now, when you first hear that statement, that is a, quite a strong statement, and it's also a little bit puzzling at first. Because what kind? What does that? What does that purpose mean? He he brings redemption in order that people should know he brings redemption. Okay, but you understand. Think think a little bit about what we say about redemption, right? Hashem. The world will be filled with knowledge of God, right? We say it in Shemona Esrei's Musafs on Yantif. Every every creation will know that you created him. Right, everything that that exists will know that you made it exist. That is the nature of a geula. The purpose of a geula is to reveal that God is making it, is doing it. Mm-hmm. That's actually not such a strange idea once we realize that. Velo yomru and not say lo Hashem yisbarach pa'al kozos rakach masam ve'otzem yadam. And what God does not want to have happen with a geula is that people will say, Ah, yes, we did that. That that was pretty smart thinking we had. It was good planning. Um, we had the right tools. We lined things up. We got all our ducks in a row. We're all on the same page. It was the power of our own hands. It's good we saved up for this. You see with Gulas Mitzrayim, it's a posuk, shmos peregzayin, v'yedu Mitzrayim, kian yeshem, be'otzeis yeschem eretz Mitzrayim. The Egyptians will know that I am God when I take you out of the land of Egypt. They're going to know. Therefore, therefore, im lo haisa Esther balas midazos. If Esther did not have this quality of ascribing things to their real source, <laughs> to ascribe, to hang something, right? To depend something on the one who it really depends upon. And God forbid, had she, I'm the one who saved you, right? How did we get saved on Purim? Because of Esther. Because we had an operative in the palace. Because she's so beautiful and she's so intelligent and she's so dedicated and clever and she's got spies. Then God would not have brought a redemption through her. Which is also maybe one of the things Mordechai hints to when he says, if you don't go and speak up now, God will save them some other way. Mm-hmm. God wants to make known that he does chesed and good for the Jewish people but once Esther has told over to King Ahasuerus in the name of Mordechai she makes herself a vessel 
worthy of redemption coming through her. That's an awesome thing. She can say, even though she stood to have some benefit by letting him think that she was the one bringing him the news, and she didn't, that made her fit that Esther could be the one to have a redemption come through her. And it is Dafka in this redemption that the Pasuk hints that Esther was worthy of Geula because she said something in the name of the one who said it, because God seeks that a redemption should reveal that he is the one bringing it. And Mitzrayim, it clearly did. You hear those echoes of Rav Hutner? You can recognize them through Anochi Mitzrayim. You can recognize them through Anochi Haster Aster Panai. You can recognize him through the hidden, and you can recognize him when it's open. It's the story of Esther where we learn to. Esther min Hatorah minayin. How do you know about Esther in the Torah? Haster Aster Panai. I will hide my face. But that doesn't mean that we can't look through it and find him anyway. Not in this Geula of Mitzrayim, there were big miracles. But in this Geula of Purim, there are no miracles. And if so, there was a risk that people will say, will not ascribe the Geula to Hashem Yisbarach. Esther could have said she did it, or people could have thought that she did it. Even in the days of the Hashmonaim, who were saved from Yavan, there was some little kind of miracle to make it clear that it was only God who was acting here. But here by Ahasuerus, there is no revealed miracle whatsoever. The gullus is a gullus of hastaras panim, haster aster of hidden face, and therefore there should not be any open miracle. And as we have explained, the name of the Redeemer is Esther because the redemption is hidden and not revealed. And she makes herself worthy of the redemption passing through her, and that is why the name of God also is not explicit in the, in the Megillah. And because of this, it should not then trouble you, Ha'omer Davar B'Shem Omro, that one who says something, he said, oh, you shouldn't be troubled by the fact that maybe there's someone who does cite their sources and they don't happen to bring a redemption about. Because it's not saying that the person brings the redemption about, if it did, that would be an oxymoron. <laughs> it's not the one who says it brings redemption. It's that a person who cites it is a suitable channel for redemption. When it needs to be done, God will send it through a person who is Omer Davar B'Shem Omra. And you should also know <laughs> that there is, because, there is an awesome reason for this. Very, very awesome because it is specifically through this trait of returning things to where they belong, taking them out of the hands of the one who stole them and returning them to their owner. That's kind of how Omer Davar B'Shem Omra. Saying something in the name of the one who said it is saying this could be taken as, as belonging to one person, right? You'll believe that, that I said this chiddush, this way of understanding the Torah, and that's stealing it from the one who does. So by ascribing it to the one who, go, who it belongs to, I return something back to its proper ownership. The Jewish people in a redemption get returned to their proper ownership, to the one they belong to. Instead of the nation that has taken them captive, the nature of Geula is such as to return them to God 
the place where they really belong, which is also like, it, as he says, a very awesome purpose behind the, as, the ascribing. So what is the Esther lesson then? She says it in the name of Mordechai. And because she says it in the name of Mordechai, when Haman comes in and he reveals himself to Ahasuerosh as trying to steal the throne from him, right? What do I do if I want to honor someone? And Haman thinks it's me he wants to honor. And Ahasuerosh can see that on his face. And then he says, here's how you honor me. You put the king's crown on me. You put the king's clothes on me. You put me on the king's horse. Nobody rides a king's horse. Nobody wears a king's crown. Not in any culture. That is never okay. Okay? And he's saying, I want to be the king. So, he, so when Ahasuerus says, put Mordechai on the horse. Do it, do it all for Mordechai. And Mordechai is now being paraded in the streets. And everyone's cheering and throwing their hats and throwing flowers and bowing down to this. He looks like a king. He looks like a king. Does anyone think he's a king? This was Rabbi, Rabbi Gordon's tremendous like that, it, that he did not claim to himself. <laughs> he ascribed it. Um, there was actually, it took me a little while to track this down because the name he said was not exactly the name I found it. It's, um, it's in a book called Inyano Shalyom by Rabbi David Falk, and it's based on these maharals. Um, he's walking through the streets, and he looks like a king, but he's not a king, and everyone knows he's not a king. But they're going to treat him with the honor due a king. Why? Because the king said to. You honor the king by honoring the one he says you should honor. And in that moment, when the Jews of Shushan are in the streets and they see Mordechai out of his sackcloth and ashes in the middle of the biggest fast and the terror and the fear of it all, and they see God take the person who should be honored like a king, which is Haman, He's the one with that trajectory. And all of a sudden, it's Mordechai. That is weird. That is out of place. And it is blazingly obvious when you see something so completely out of place that there's a message. So they're cheering on Mordechai, and they understand vividly that you may have to give honor to someone who wears the trappings of power. But they are not the source of power. The king is the source of power. And so there is an achuva experience, there's a tikkun that comes of that experience where it becomes clear to them what they had done wrong before now with bowing to the statues of Nebuchadnezzar and with attending the party, the feast of Ahasuerosh, which was they were ascribing the power to the place where they saw the trappings of power. But living in Gullus, living in a time of Hester Panim means God's face is not visible, but it's there. It's behind the other person's trapping of power. So you may need to show honor in some way. I'm not sure about the bowing down to the statue part. You may need to show honor, but you must never think that that honor or the power is theirs. The power of a king, the hearts of kings are in the hands of God. Always. So you need to know that that is the true power, that they learned to ascribe something to its source. It's when that is, uh, it's amazing. If you look at Shoshana's Yaakov, which is that, that poem after, um, which I think maybe goes back to the time of the Gemara. I mean, this, this is not like a modern poem, that Shoshana's Yaakov. Bir Osam Yacha, the Jewish people, the, the flower of Israel, rejoiced together when they saw Mordechai in his royal garments. That's what it says. Bir Osam Yacha Mordechai. 
They see him in the royal garments. That's a pretty, um, that's a pretty amazing thing. <laughs> like, why seeing him in the royal garments? Why is that going to be the thing that makes you rejoice? It's because that was the correction. And that salvation lasts forever. I mean, they've passed that down. That was a national experience. And now we all know, we don't all have it perfect, but we can all learn it out that we need to ascribe the power to God. He is the one hidden behind. We can recognize him through Anochi Haster Aster. Remember many years ago, I, I pointed out, and this, this I can ascribe to my, myself, I suppose that doesn't make sense either, but you know, realizing that the word Gullus and the word Geula really are both on a root of Gimelamid. What's the difference? Geula has an Aleph visible in the middle of it. The Anochias. Galus is legalot, to reveal. Geula is when the Aleph is revealed. Galus is the way to Geula, right? That is exactly the process in the Megillah. It's a Galus, it's hidden. And from uh, how do you live in Galus? It's through a process of revealing the Aleph, even when it's not visible. Recognizing that it's there. In, in the Galus, there's an Aleph, you just can't see it. Okay. That's the correction that had to happen in the time of Esther. And once it happened, as soon as that event is over, Haman heads for home, and the servants come and they hustle him. They're like in a frantic, chaotic, he's dead within hours. The salvation comes. You know, Yeshua Sashem Keherifayin, God's salvation is in the blink of an eye. This is an example of it. Once the, but you have to understand that the geula, the redemption, really happened when inside the Jewish people there was a correction. That's, that is why this is a necessary part of the story and why this is the redemption of Esther. Once it happens, so then the salvation happens, it's, it's literally almost in an instant. I mean, by the time everyone got home and changed their clothes back into sackcloths and ashes, it's over. He's gone, which is also kind of remarkable. Right? Okay. So that was, that was uh, where we wanted to go. Uh, there was another interesting point. This, the, the salvation is forever. Vetikvasam, or vesikvasam, their hope, becholdor vador. Shekokovecha, that all that hope to you, lo yevoshu, will not be disappointed in that hope. And the Maharal says, kav, tikva, the root of tikva, hope, is the word kav, because that means a line. Tikva is drawing a line between you and the source of the hope, what you hope to. Tikva in God, right? That's the line. So that's the lesson. They drew a line to God right through the mask. <clears throat> and that goes for all generations. Lahodia to make known through experience. You've been there. You know it. Those who draw their lines to you, those who hope to God, will not be disappointed in their hopes. Right? doesn't mean things always play out the way we want them to. But if you know that the line gets drawn to God, not to some investor and not to some king and not to some teacher, and not, then you're not going to be disappointed in your hopes because you're drawing your line to the right place. Happy for him. But you know, Esther had to suffer so much. Esther suffered tremendously. Yeah.
Esther. She suffered for us. She she did. She did. That's the reason she was put in that place. That's what Mordechai told her, and she did suffer a lot. You know, that was last year's topic. But this scholars we have now, we're suffering too. Yeah. We have suffering also, oh. um, but it has purpose. It has purpose. And Esther understood that. Oh. Esther understood that her suffering had a purpose and that that's, that's not something you would seek to give up. It's, you want to be redeemed, right? The purpose of redemption, it's such a different thing. The purpose of redemption is not relief from suffering per se. That's, a, that's an outcome of redemption. Mm-hmm. The purpose of suffering is making revealed that God is the one who does good for us. And we have to know And that's that one and the works. same as being relieved from suffering. Yeah. yeah. Betty, thank you for hosting us here today. Thank you. Oh, thank yeah, you. I'm going to Happy Purim. Happy Purim. I'm so glad you I'm going to have to